everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of the Uncorked Corner podcast. We are very excited to be welcoming our friend Daniel Dow from Patrimony Wines. Uh, it is going to be a very exciting episode, and we have a lot of good things to share. Before we get started, Daniel, can you kick it off by introducing yourself and telling us about how you got started? Yes, yes. Hi, Bianca. My name is Daniel Dow. Uh, I'm the co-founder as well as the winemaker of Patrimony Estate. Uh, I own the winery with my brother, George, and uh, I tend to focus on all the uh, vineyard winemaking, um, you know, overlooking the business day to day as well. And George, uh, you know, uh, looks at the business as well with me and oversees more the sales and the marketing part of the business. So we work together as, a, as two brothers um, and I'm excited to be here. All right. We know a little bit about that. Bianca is my sister. So siblings here as well works together. So we know how that can uh, be, but it's a lot of fun. So tell us a little bit more about the vineyards. One thing that I really wanted to dive into is the region you're in. Uh, we've talked to people all the way, you know, from over here in New England and Ontario, Canada, up to Oregon and people down in Napa. So tell us a little bit about that Paso Robles region that you're in and uh, how that can contribute to the uniqueness of your wines. Thank you. No, I, I think without a doubt, uh, what my brother and I have done after searching for eight years, the entire globe, uh, we found a terroir, a, a vineyard, uh, and a location that we don't think exists anywhere else on planet Earth. Besides, maybe that gets very close Tuscany. Uh, there are some parts of Tuscany that get actually really close to the way our terroir is. So, uh, you know, our, our winery is more than a winery. I like to always tell people this, uh, our winery is a case of disruptive innovation. And I'm gonna get into the science as to why, um, you know, we have basically taken the wine world by storm in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, obviously, as you know, our, our, uh, our other winery is called Dow Family Estates, a winery that's very well known right now across you know, the world, pretty much in 50 countries. And today could arguably be looked upon as the fastest growing winery in the United States. Um, so the patrimony was kind of uh, uh, the brainchild of Dow. We basically stumbled across few places on the vineyard uh, that allowed us to make wines that have phenolics. And we're going to talk about that word in a few minutes, uh, like the world has never seen. So we relaunched Patrimony Estate and um, patrimony has been uh, pretty much accepted in the market as something very unique. So let's talk about why. We talk about the terroir. So the question to answer you, Nick, that you asked is why Paso? That is a question that I get asked all the time. Why did you go to Paso? Why didn't you go to Bordeaux or Napa or Tuscany for that matter, which we may very well still go to Tuscany. That's another story. Uh, we love Italy. So uh, let's talk about terroir, the French word that comes from the word terre, which means many things. Terre means earth. But you know, terroir means two specifically, two things that are specific to the location, the sense of place where the vines are grown. One, the soil, and two, the climate. Now, how your soil and how your climate is, uh, are, they're going to dictate the quality of your wine. You could be the greatest winemaker in the world, but if you don't have great soil and a great climate, chances are you're gonna have a hard time making terroir-driven wines. Wines are unadulterated. Wines are just made with native yeast wines that are really reflective uh, of, uh, of the place where the vines grow. So what is it that's so unique at Patrimony Estate uh, that we don't feel exists anywhere else on planet Earth? Well, let's start with soils. What do we know about soils? 
we have thousands of years of history with wine. You know, the wine industry goes back thousands of years. What we do know is that most of the greatest vineyards on earth, especially those in Europe that go back thousands of years, all share the same soil. It doesn't matter if you're in Bordeaux, if you're in Bourgogne, Burgundy, if you're in Champagne, if you're in Alsace, if you are in the Rhone region, if you are in Tuscany with the Galestro soils, if you're in the Mosul region, uh, if you are in parts of Spain. So regardless of where you look, these soils are known for being very, very unique soil. Now the question is why? Well, for many reasons. You have the clay and you have the calcareous that work together in conjunction. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, share my screen with you so I can show you a picture of what I'm talking about. Uh, I think the, the screen sharing is disabled. You may have to enable it for me, Nick. Oh, let me definitely get on that. And uh, while I am doing that, <laughs> to, just so everyone knows it's listening, if you are listening on the uh, podcast, just audio only, we are putting this up on YouTube so that everyone can follow along and see these charts as well. While we're waiting, what is your favorite part of being in the Paso Robles region as a consumer and as just a person living your lifestyle there? Is there anything special about the area that we should know about? It is truly, arguably, the prettiest place I've ever seen on the planet. I mean, it is raw. It is not at all what people think of California. People think often of San Francisco or LA, two great cities, uh, when you think of California. But this is how California looked 50 years ago. You've got the proximity to the Pacific Ocean. You've probably heard of Hearst Castle, uh, the highway one that goes all the way to Big Sur. We're literally 14 miles from the Pacific Ocean as the pro flies. Uh, it's actually, we were actually the only vineyard in California that grows Bordeaux varieties that is at 2,200 feet elevation, but yet only 14 miles from the very cold Pacific Ocean. Uh, there's no traffic or very rarely any traffic. Uh, the area is very wide and spread out quite a bit. Um, you know, Paso is 614,000 acres. Well, let me tell you, let me give you a perspective of how big that is. That is larger than Napa and Sonoma put together. That is twice the size of Bordeaux. And if you've been to Bordeaux, you know you can drive for an hour and a half to go from Poyac to Saint-Emilion. So imagine twice bigger than that. So that's what I love about it. I love the climate, uh, warm in the summer, cold at night always, proximity to the Pacific Ocean, very much spread out so you don't hit traffic. Uh, very much of a family-oriented place. It's not Disneyland. It's not uh, a commercial place. It's really, it's very common to walk into a winery and meet the owner. Uh, and often the owner is the winemaker. So it's a very different thing. Most wineries are owned by families, not owned by corporations. So it's, it's a very, really, uh, it's a very different environment than, uh, than people are used to. And I think we're going to be able to do some screen, screen sharing. Hopefully you can see, uh, oops, can you see this picture? I can, yep. So this is what I'm talking about. These are soils that you never found in California. California is known for having four predominant soils, clay, loam, volcanic, and sandy. Uh, of course, sometimes you've got gravel as well. And you've got beautiful places like in Napa that has the Rutherford bench, which has beautiful Rutherford dust, uh, where you can really make beautifully terroir driven wines. But these soils, don't just provide terroir-driven wines. These soils are 100% French. I mean, that is exactly what you find in areas like Bordeaux or in areas like Burgundy. In French, they're called argilo calcaire, in English, calcareous clay. And notice on top, if you were walking on top of these soils, you would never, ever think that there's nothing but clay. 
because the first layer is clay. But underneath, you've got this limestone subsoil. What is limestone? It's basically this region when it was for millions of years underwater, all these shells disintegrated basically with time and formed that limestone subsoil, which is exactly what you find in places again like Bordeaux. You know, most people don't know that, but Bordeaux at one time was totally underwater. As a matter of fact, it's right next to the water, which is why it's called Bordeaux. In French, Bordeaux means Bordeaux, which means next to the water. Bordeaux is right next to the water. And that's why you find these soils, and that's why you find them as well in Pastorobos, because the whole region was underwater millions of years ago. But these are very much French or European soils. Now, what do these soils provide? Let's look at this presentation. So this is another picture of a different part of the vineyard. Notice again, you've got a little bit of lighter colored clay, but underneath, you've got a little limestone subsoil. See, the clay is gonna provide you with color. And color is very important because color means texture. And when a wine is more textural, it is superior. That is a well-known fact that we've learned by observing vintages from Bordeaux for thousands of years, right? Better vintages tend to have more color, which means more texture. The clay is gonna provide you with nose, bouquet. The older you age our wines, the more aromatic they get, which is very, very unique. I just had a vertical of uh, our wines going back to 2013. And the wines, I mean, it was like, I felt like I was sticking my nose in a, in a bouquet of flowers in a glass. And the older they get, the more floral they become. Uh, also, the clay provides fat and flesh to the wine. And, and clay, so clay is very important. I mean, most of Bordeaux is clay with a limestone subsoil. Most of Napa is actually clay uh, without the limestone subsoil. The calcareous part provides three magical things which you need to really create the wines that you know, we're creating. One, they provide you minerality. These soils allow you to go way past fruit and alcohol. If you're used to California wines, California Cabernet, they tend to be jammy, very jammy character. They tend to be fruit and alcohol driven. These soils go beyond that to give you minerality. Two, uh, as you probably know, most Cabernets in California, if not the vast majority of them, are acidulated at harvest because the soils can't hold the acid. So by the time you actually reach physiological ripeness, you lose your acidity, so you have to add it. These soils allow you to have all the natural acidity without ever being, it being added. So it's natural. Now, what does that mean to the, in the palate? What does it mean on the, on, on the palate? It means that the acid, because it's not added, doesn't bite you in the back of the jaw. It doesn't scratch you in your throat. It is integrated with the wine, which is something that's very important for me as a winemaker. Last but not least, these are the only soils that allow you to successfully dry farm a vineyard. Now, it's interesting because when you look at history, you know, the European palate today lacks acidity, lacks minerality. The question is why? Well, it's funny because when I did the research, I found out that the Romans found out that these are the only soils that could plant vines and them surviving with no outside irrigation. You have to remember 2000 years ago, you didn't have electricity. You couldn't hire somebody to dig a well that's a thousand feet deep, pull the water out with electricity and irrigate all the vines. So you had to plant them on soils that allowed dry farming. And they found that these are the only soils you know, that actually allow you to do that. Uh, so even in areas like California, you can dry farm or deficit irrigate, which is something very rare. Again, unfortunately, these soils are not found in California. The only place you find a big percentage of them is on the west side of Paso Robles, a little bit on the east side as well. And as you go up in the hills, you basically find these soils. Now, why is it that 
that these souls are found on the hills, especially Apostle, because there's a, there's a gap called the Templeton Gap, where there was tectonic movements millions of years ago and separated the earth. When that process happened, all the topsoil got pushed up to the higher elevation. So it basically ended up covering the limestone. So this is why it's important to have not limestone soils, but calcareous clay soils, because clay is very important for Bordeaux varieties in order for you to have a full canopy and not get sunburned and basically provide the color, the bouquet, the fat and flesh that these wines love to have. So that's the soil. Now let's talk about climate. And pasto is often misquoted when it comes to climate. You know, we have to, again, again remember, as I was mentioning to Bianca, that pasto is 614,000 acres. It's twice larger than Bordeaux. Uh, so, and it's bigger than Sonoma and Napa put together. So when somebody says pasto is hot or pasto is warm or pasto is cold, first, first question you should ask them is, where are you in Paso? Uh, it would be like me going to Carneros and leaving Carneros, which I'm sure you've been to, right? It's a very cold area where they make a lot of sparkling wine you know, in Napa. And writing an article that I've been to Napa and Sonoma, and it is very cold, you wonder how they grow cap. That would make no sense. But it's the same thing that happens in Paso. People come in the summer where it could be hot downtown, they leave and they say, well, I've been to Paso. It is really hot in there. Numbers don't lie. Let's look at numbers. There are two ways to measure climate. One, how many days you've reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius per year. Why? Because the minute the vine gets to 100 degrees, it shuts down and no longer produces sugar. You get sunburned. At the end of the day, you degrade the quality of the wine. The other thing to look at is the average temperature for the growing period. That means you take the average maximum temperature every day, the entire growing season, and you average it out. That gives you an idea of heat accumulation. So it gives you an idea of how well you're gonna ripen. Not enough, you don't ripen. Too much, you ripen too much, you have high alcohols, jammy characters, things you don't really want. So let's look at 2019. In 2019, the entire calendar year of 2019, Pastor was on the east side by the airport where the weather station is, just close to the downtown, saw 27 days at 100 degrees or more. And 19 was a cooler year, if I may add. And Napa, St. Helena, saw 11 days at 100 degrees or more. Even Poyac, the birthplace of Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux, saw that year, was a warmer year for them, four days at 100 degrees. On that mountain, the entire calendar year of 19, not a single day reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit. If you look at our average temperature, we were five degrees cooler than Paso. We were three degrees cooler than Napa. And thankfully we we're five degrees cooler than actually Poyac. So we were kind of right in between, you know, maybe parts of Napa or, or Paso and Bordeaux, right in the middle. Same for 2020, it was a warmer year. We had a few heat waves in June, which is where those highs came in. We had six days at hundred degrees. Paso saw 32, Napa saw 13, Poyac saw two. And the average temperature, again, was two degrees cooler than Napa and six degrees cooler than Paso. In 2021, what was ended up being a very warm vintage till August, and then very, very cold after that, we saw nine days. Paso saw 32, Napa 11, Poyac zero. It was a very cold year. We were 83 degrees, so three degrees cooler than Napa and six degrees cooler than Paso. So that gives you an idea of how unique this climate is when it comes to sorry, when it comes to soil and climate. And that is the main reason, Nick, we went there. 
because we found a terroir that it would allow us to make wines that are unadulterated, made only with native yeast. There's no acid added, there's no sugar added, there is nothing added. What you're drinking is the purest expression of the terroir in the glass. That's great stuff. That was all uh, some great info there that really, we haven't really had a lot of a crash course there on how the different types of soil especially can really affect you know, those characteristics, like you're saying with the clay and the cacares, how they'd really affect the different aspects of wine that you would think of. And you're talking, you know, with the nose and everything, giving it that floral character and different things like that. And starting to taste the wine, I actually tasted it for the first time while you were going through that there. And I can definitely see what you're saying, you know, looking at it. I, so I'm a whiskey drinker, so I'm, I've never had a formal introduction into wine tasting. However, I follow sort of the same process, you know, appearance, nose, taste. That's the way that I go. So I look at it, super dark, super thick, um, heavy, kind of full texture to it on the looks. I can't, you know, there's no light peeking through. There's a lot of times you see like, a, you know, like Pinot Noir, for example, where it's almost a little translucent where you can see through. None of that here uh, to give it that start. On the nose at first, a little bit of fruitiness. But you get almost a, you know, a tickle to the nose like flowers, like you're saying, that you know, floral texture like roses, like sniffing roses, something like that. And then on the taste, yeah. that's uh, the taste is just, you were right when you told me it was going to be like something I've never had. So at first, you know, it hits your tongue and it's like similar to a fine scotch or something like that, where it develops, it's complex. It's not just you're hit with something, it's a little bit of berry and then it's gone. It really does develop on the palate. Like at first you get a creaminess and a savoriness to it. And then it develops and you get some more of that fruit and I'm getting like dark berry, like cherry and stuff like that coming through on the back end, but very, very delicious. It is, it's unlike any wine that I've ever had. I'll give you that. It's very unique. Thank you. Well, I'd like to put everything you just said in numbers. So that's what I'd like to cover next, yeah. if you're okay with that. Yeah, let's do it. So you see that there's, a, there's an objective way and a subjective way of looking at wine quality. The subjective way, we're not against it, is a critic could look at a wine and say, here's a 100 point, which by the way, this is the first 100 point cap in the, in the, in the Central Coast or Pastor Robles that was ever granted, the one you're just drinking right now, the 18 cap, right? I believe you have the 18, correct? Yep, 18. Okay. So that's the first 100-point cab ever, uh, any wine to any cab that's ever received 100 points in the, the Pastoral region. And, um, but so, so we're not against ratings, but it is subjective because one other critic could look at this wine and go, you know, I don't think the color is this. I don't think the tannins are that. You know, here's a 95, right? It's very subjective. So there's an objective way today, scientifically, to look at a bottle of wine and to find out how, how it rates in terms of phenolics, that's the word, phenolics. Okay, phenolics can basically really give you an X-ray of your wine by quantifying things that are, are basically three things. One is the three things that you do when you take a glass of wine. First, you look at the color. And we, we talk about why color is important because it means texture and texture is very important. Two, the nose, very important. And three, the tannin structure, how long the wine is gonna age, or if the wine got over-extracted, did not get over-extracted, if the tannin structures are balanced or not. So these, these things today are called phenolics and we can measure them. We can look at a wine and basically say, this wine's got this much color, that many parts per million of color, has so many parts per million of tannins. So here's what we've done, Nick, and I'm gonna share with you this chart that I don't often share. It's actually, we measured over 700 of the best Bordeaux wines and best Cabernet wines in the world, most expensive, highest rated, 
from all over the planet. And here's what we found. We found that nothing came even close. And I'm gonna share with you that chart and walk you through it, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, You're speaking next language. He's a big numbers guy. <laughs> Here we go. Can you see this chart? Yep. Okay. Got it. So there are three columns I'd like to show you here. Look at that first chart, that first one that's purple. You see that 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 chart right here is color molecules that are stable. That means that's the color molecule that was able to attach itself to a tenon molecule and therefore will not precipitate in the bottle. So for instance, if you drink a bottle of wine that has a lot of bound anthocyanins or basically you know, stable color molecules, 10 years later, that color is still gonna be mostly there, okay? So that's a very important thing to look at because that is correlated to texture. So that's the purple column. Let's look at the second column, the orange one. That's tannins. Now, you don't wanna have too many tannins because if you do, that means the wine, the winemaker may have very much messed up and over extracted. And you're gonna to have to lay down this wine for potentially 10 years, 15, 20 years before you actually drink it. And often, as we know from a lot of French wines, by the time the tannins soften up, the fruit could be gone. And then you don't have anything to drink. I'm sure you've had that experience before because it's happened to me countless times. The last thing we wanna look at is that blue column. That's a ratio. That's basically how much of the overall phenolics are tannins. And what you'll find is anything that starts getting over 52%, you could start getting grippy tannins. That means that the winemaker may have over extracted. So let's look at that. Look at where patrimony lies. I mean, if you look at some of the most expensive bottles of wine on earth, and they're all listed here, patrimony reigns by far, okay? There is one wine and only one vintage that got close, However, look at their tannin levels, 2,170 with a ratio of 56.5%. Without putting words into the winemaker's mouth, to me, this wine was clearly over-extracted. But if you go down the list, I mean, it's hard to find anything of quality or patrimony when it comes to color, when it comes to tannin, and when it comes to ratio, when you combine all three together. And that is what's unique about this experience when you drink patrimony. That's why I like to often say that this is not just a wine, another wine, it's a case of disruptive innovation because this kind of phenolics, you can't really find on planet Earth or if you do, it is very, very rare. So, and that is really what makes, again, patrimony very unique. Patrimony is arguably the highest and most balanced, not just the highest, but balanced at the same time, phenolics on planet Earth for Bordeaux varieties and we've witnessed by measuring over 700 wines from everywhere. And to keep on with the numbers there, so looking at that 50, so is 50 right about where you guys are at there on most of those? Uh, that's kind of the sweet spot. So over, you mentioned is over extracted and under would be under extracted. So you want to find that balance right there at that 50? So you don't want to go over 52%. And my experience, and this is totally based on my palate, by the way, when you start reaching, start going over 52%, the tannins get too, too grippy. So, you know, uh, it doesn't become enjoyable the day it's released. So my goal as a winemaker is to make a wine that you can drink today, the day it's released, like this wine, but then let it age 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And that's what I've been able to create by making sure that I map out the phenolics so I know exactly where my extraction is. So this wine that you're having again, I know I just had the 2013, which is nine years old. You would think it just got bottled two months ago. I mean, it is beautiful, dark, 
complex, it's improving, but it's probably gonna improve another 10, 15 years before it settles down for decades after that. And uh, I did a little digging on your website, kind of in preparation for this and looking at some of your different stuff. And before we get into more of that process and how you make the wine that makes it special, uh, do you think your engineering background really leads to your fondness for the numbers and really getting into the science behind what, you know, the winemaking? Well, so, so it does, but I wanna also clarify that I don't make wine by numbers. So all these measurements are based on my palate. So it's kind of what my palate like. Now, the question is, the reason they ask me, ask me is why do you use those numbers? And let me explain it to you. I'm gonna pull up another chart, which will, you'll find very helpful. So how is wine traditionally made, Nick and Bianca? You basically bring in grapes, you put them into a tank like this one, and then you ferment the wine with the skin, so it's must, and it's fermenting. Now, if any winemaker ever tells you, well, I taste the wine every day and I decide if it's balanced, they're simply lying, okay? Let me explain to you why. There are three reasons why it's impossible to taste the wine while it's fermenting and to figure out if the wine is balanced or not. The first one is you've got a ton of car carbonic acid. Now, if you've never had carbonic acid, well, I encourage you to try it when the wine is fermenting. It tickles up your tongue, the acids are all messed up, the pH is all messed up, you can't taste the wine. Two, there are hundreds of grams of residual sugar. Now, we all know what residual sugar does, right? Residual sugar, when you have sugar into wine, a lot of winemakers add sugar to their wines, I don't, because it masks faults. So I'm gonna give you a funny story and you're welcome to try it. You know, sometimes I will go to a restaurant, not often, that doesn't have that wines. So I'll order a glass, you know, a wine by the glass. It could be a Pinot, it could be a Cab, it could be anything, right? And I go to taste it and I, you know, I'm very picky, my palate's very sensitive and I'll pick up on all kinds of faults, some greenness, some bitterness, you know, vegetal flavors. And obviously I don't like to drink wines like that and they don't have anything else by the glass. And I don't want to order a bottle. So you want to know what I do? I take a little sugar. I add a little sugar to the wine and all these faults go, this, go away and disappear. Try it, okay, it's easy to try that. So winemakers add sugar because they want to mask faults. There's nothing to mask here, which is why all the patrimony wines are under and for the most part, 0.5 gram per liter. Two gram per liter is considered dry. We're under 0.5. Now, after measuring hundreds of wines from California, I can tell you that I see them every day between three and nine, okay? But we don't. There's zero sugar in these wines or very little, uh, less, than, less than two for sure, less than one, if not 0.5 in most cases. But so obviously because of the hundreds of grams of residual sugar, you can't taste the wine. You don't know if there's a fault, not a fault, if it's extracted or over-extracted. And the last but not least, it's not just wine, it's must. If you try must, it's grippy, it's dirty. It's got all these things floating in it. So it's not easy to taste the wine while it's fermenting and go, oh, I think I've extracted enough tannins. So let me just drain off the skin so I can balance out this wine. It's impossible. So here's what I did. I wasn't satisfied with this. With this. And the reason why is because you've probably heard of blending, right? most wines are blended to a certain degree. Now, why is it that they're blended? Because you cannot taste while the wine is fermenting. So most winemakers will make the wine, then they'll wait for spring, then they'll start tasting all the wines and go, oh, this one's got a little bit too grish pyrazine in it. Let's add one more note. Or this one, uh, 
you know, is already extracted with the tannins. Let's find another lot that can reduce the tannins a little bit, you know, so, so you really use blending for faults, which is why France often uses blending because one of the reasons the largest planted variety in Bordeaux is Merlot is because Merlot doesn't have pyrazine. And when you don't ripen Cab and Cab Franc, which has a lot of pyrazine, then Merlot kind of lowers the threshold and allows you to fix those mistakes. So blending is used for that. But I wasn't happy with this traditional technique. So here's what I did. I did the reverse engineering on it. I tasted 700 wines, made notes after taste, testing the phenolics on all of them with my palate. And then I came up with a range by saying, aha, uh -huh, my palate likes these wines in those ranges for color, for you know, tannins, for the ratio, for this and that. There are actually many parameters, probably about six or seven of them. So then I started fermenting the wines and because I cannot taste the wine while I was fermenting, I measure phenolics three times a day so I can meet my target that I will find out when the wine is dry later. So I actually reverse engineered. So to answer your question, do I make wine by numbers? No, but when I cannot taste something then I use what my palate likes by measuring and the, the numbers give me a guideline, no difference than they would give me a guideline on my pH, on my acidity, on my alcohol. It's just another measurement but it's based on my palate. So this reduces the, 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 the blending effort on my part. Blending for me becomes, do I want a little more floral bouquet? Do I want maybe a middle palate? Do I want a little bit of a longer finish? But it's not about how can I fix this problem and that problem? It's more about how do I create the full experience from beginning to end by making sure that everything is there, all the components. And you really are specializing right now in Cabernets. So is that a decision based on what you like and based on like your palate and what you lean towards? Or do you have your sights set on expanding into other wine varietals um, in the future? Well, I love Bordeaux. Uh, I love Cabernet, I love Cabernet Franc, I love Merlot. These are the wines that speak to my heart. Uh, of course, I like other wines. Um, you know, I love Pinot, I love Burgundy. Uh, when I'm in Europe, I drink mostly Burgundy if I'm not drinking my wines. Uh, I like Super Tuscans from uh, Tuscany, which, uh, by the way, I'll announce it right now. I'm in escrow on 160 acres to actually do what I did in Paso in Tuscany. So expect a Super Tuscan to come out of Tuscany, hopefully in the next five years. Uh, very excited about this project. So, um, but the Bordeaux, Bordeaux really is, is where my heart is. I mean, uh, I love drinking a good cab. I love drinking a beautiful Cabernet Franc. I love drinking a a smooth but structured Merlot uh, that is such a, that's so noble. Merlot is so noble, such a noble grape. And to me, when it's done right, it just mesmerizes you. I mean, let's that's, that's not forget one of the most expensive wines in the world is actually Merlot. Petrus is Merlot, Passetto is Merlot from Italy. So Merlot plays a big role in higher end wines and I love the taste of Merlot. So those are the three varieties that I really like. Cab, Cab Franc, Merlot. And if you think about it, these are the three varieties that patrimony focuses on when it comes to reds. And uh, so to talk more about the actual winemaking process. So when I was doing that, look at your website, I saw that with the barrels, you use specifically French oak barrels, right? And you have yeah. a special toasting process that's used to make sure that you don't over, you know, char those barrels and you just get that toastiness without burning them. Uh, can you talk to us about the winemaking process as far as you can talk to us about that um, and uh, how absolutely. that really makes this special? Absolutely. Uh, you know, many things about winemaking. First and foremost, uh, winemaking for me starts in the vineyard. It doesn't start in the winery. 
uh, greatest, the greatest wines in the world are made in the vineyard. Uh, when you inherit grapes uh, that basically are not up to par, uh, then you have to become a, turn the wine making into a lab experiment, which I refuse to do, especially for a wine like Patrimony. So um, let me start by talking in the vineyard, which is really, again, where the winemaking starts for me. Uh, it, there's a, there are two words to describe my philosophy when it comes to uh, growing the right grapes in the vineyards. And the, the two words are summarize my entire philosophy, and it's called vine balance. It's all about vine balance. So let me give you an analogy what vine balance is. Have you ever had a fruit tree? Doesn't matter what kind. Name me the variety. A fruit drink? Yeah, like a fruit orange drink. juice. Orange. Okay, so you've had an orange tree. Okay, how often do you go out and all the oranges on the tree are all evenly arrived, ready to be harvested at the same time on one tree? Never, right? You'll go out, there's just not enough energy to ripen everything at the same time. So you'll feel the oranges, the ones that are ripe that you can tug on very easily. You grab them, you go next week, you grab another few oranges, you do that over four weeks and you got all your oranges ripe, correct? Okay. Well, you can do that with any kind of fruit, cherries, apples, pears, lemons. I mean, the story goes on, but you can't do that with grapes, especially red grapes. Now, why is that? Because the red grapes, the grapes change color. They go through veraison or veraison in English. They change color up to two months before harvest. So it's impossible to send a crew in that's using those very sharp cutters and telling them, oh, before you actually snatch one of the cluster, why don't you feed it and see if it can tug well? Well, we'll need that 10 months to harvest two acres. I mean, there's, there's millions of clusters waiting to be harvested. So it's impossible to do that. So how do I make winemakers go about it? Well, what winemakers do is they play the laws of averages. They basically will send a crew saying, get a random sample of grapes from the vineyard, from the block. They'll bring it to the winery. They'll crush it in the lab. They'll measure the sugar and go, Oh, we've got 25 degrees of sugar. We can make enough alcohol. Let's make the wine. That's when you don't make great wine. Why? Because what happens is that you never had vine balance most likely in the first place. Kind of like you going out to that orange tree, right? Getting all the oranges, squeeze them into an orange juice, hoping that it's going to turn out okay. Well, you've got some of them that are almost molded. They're like overly ripe. You've got some of them that are green and dry. And you put them together. You may like, you know, the color of them. But you're not going to like the taste. You're going to have all these crazy flavors competing. And that is why most winemakers fail. They fail because even though they can get color, even though they can get alcohol, even though they can get the basic building structure, building components of that wine that has the potential to make it great, when you go actually put it in your mouth, you go, oh, I don't like that. Because you got pruning, green flavors all combined together. So how do you make a great wine in the vineyard? Well, first and foremost, you have to have vine balance. What does that mean by mouse? If you can imagine this, all these clusters on that vine need to ripen evenly at the same time. It would be like you wanting all those oranges to ripen at the same time. Well, how would you go about that? Well, for one, when the orange start blooming, right? And they start flowering, you're gonna go out and you're gonna reduce 80% of them. And you're only gonna keep about 20% of them hanging on that tree. So there's enough energy to ripen all these evenly. Now to do that, you know, the average vineyard in California has 700 vines per acre. We go up to 3,630 vines per acre. So it costs us five times more to plant a vineyard, costs us five times more to manage an acre per year. And we still get the same yields that the people who have 700 vines get. The difference 
is that when that fruit arrives at our winery, it's evenly ripe at the same time because we're only keeping between 15 to 25 clusters per vine, while most wineries are between 80 to 100 clusters per vine. A big difference. So that's where the winemaking starts. Second, we use an optical sorter. We're actually the first winery to get an optical sorter in Paso Robles. They're about half a million dollars, but they allow us to catch things that the human eye cannot see. The computer eye can see slight discoloration. They may see a little pinkiness. The human eye cannot see that, especially if you've got a lot of berries on the table. How are you going to pick one out of 3,000 by saying, oh, this one is a little lighter, but the optical sorting system can. So we use an optical sorting system to sort the berries. After we ferment the wine, so there's a process that sometimes is used in France, but even in France, they don't use it too often because it's very expensive. It's called vin de goutte in, in French or in English, free run. So when you're fermenting, right, all those, all this must in the tank, the wine at the end of the fermentation, the wine, when you drain the tank, that freely runs out, that is the best quality wine. Why? Well, there's four kinds of tannins. There's skin tannins, seed tannin, stem tannins, and wood tannins. And you can guess which one is the best tannin, which ones? The skin, because they're the most silky, they're the most integrated, they're the most enjoyable. Now, when you do free run, your tannins come mostly from skin. But when you go press, you're gonna get other kinds of tannins that are a lot harder, harsher. There's more of them. They're harder to, uh, to soften up with time, okay? So we don't use any press. So we get about 80 gallons per one ton of grapes for patrimony. Most vineyards in the world get around 165 gallons per ton of juice per ton of grapes. So we get half what every other winery gets by basically harvesting one ton of grapes. The difference is our, our tannins come from skin. They're silky, they're integrated as you can taste in the glass that you have in front of you, even though the wine. But make no mistake about it, as I showed you in the chart before, even though we have silky tannins that may appear nice and soft and enjoyable, we actually have some of the highest tannins on earth when it comes to wines, as you can see in the phenolic chart. So the structure is there to allow this wine to age very well for decades to come. In terms of cooperages, so I'm very picky about cooperages. cooperages uh, I require, you know, there, there's such a thing as, uh, as tight grain, very tight grain, extra tight grain. And then there's the patrimony tight grain. Let me explain that. The, tight, the tighter the grain is, the slower the integration with the wine it is. And that's what we're looking for. Uh, if you have only tight grain, the wood releases very quickly. It shocks the wine a little bit. So when you go drink that wine, you're tasting like oak. It's like almost you're drinking wood. We don't want that. So we, we want extra, extra tight grain to basically make sure that, the, that we, do, we do longer elevages. So most wineries will do 15 to 18 months, you know, barrel aging or elevage in French. We do 30 months with patrimony, but we do it with what I call patrimony tight grain. And that is grain that is not just extra tight, but there's less than one millimeter between the grains, less than one, which is very rare. Two, we customize our own toast because we don't want to taste char. So we do it, a very low temperature, usually between 160 to 170 degrees. So we don't get close to 180, which is really where things start changing. And we do it for a very long time to create that long finish that we want in that toast. Last but not least, uh, we, uh, there's a special kind of wood 
wood that is very rare. You don't often find it uh, in France. It's one tree out of maybe a hundred that has it. It's pinkish color. It's called in French bois rosé. And uh, what we found is it comes from older trees. It has very extra tight grain. And on top of that, it got some flavors that are very unique. So we aged those barrels. You know, I'm gonna show you a chart in France and uh, make the barrel in France. And last year, we started making, also doing it, aging it on our mountain. So it is the purest expression of terroir. This is Bois Rosé. You can see how pink it is. That is very, very rare strain of wood that normally cooperages don't bother doing on their own because they're very rare and they can't make a living out of them. But because of our special relationship with the Canadel family, my great friends in France, they accepted to take these trees and age them for not three years, but for five years out of the elements in France. Most barrels are seasoned in the elements for two to two and a half years. Now, I like to go five. Now, why is that? It's kind of like dry aged beef, right? The longer you dry age the beef, the softer it is. And for, 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 for wood, the longer you season it, the more flavor it has, the less tannins it has. And remember, I want my tannins to come from what? From skin. So I don't want a lot of wood tannins. So I season the barrel four or five years uh, before it's made in here. And then let me show you, uh, this is a barrel that for the first time made out of Bois Rosé that was aged on the mountain here in Paso on our, on our patrimony estate for three years because it's warmer than Bordeaux. We don't want to go five years here, the wood could crack. So we do three years. So not only do we use many cooperages that have customized stoves for us, customized wood for us, but we have our own barrel that we created just for patrimony, which is extra tight grain uh, that is seasoned on the mountain for three years. All this is aimed at giving an experience that's very unique, that allows us to have the purest expression of what our terroir is in the glass. And you mentioned the word toast a couple of times. So for those of our listeners who are maybe newer to the wine world, because we do cover all sorts of spirits, can you tell us what toast is and just give us like a basic idea of what that means in term in wine terminology. Yes, so when you assemble the barrel with French oak, uh, it's not toasted. So technically it doesn't really impart the flavor that you really want. The more you toast it, the more you got flavors that accentuate the wine. So for instance, if you have a heavy toast, you're gonna get a lot of bacon uh, and you could get some char. Uh, some people like medium plus toast. Uh, and that's where you get a little char, depending on the barrel, the manufacturer, some barrel manufacturers, their medium plus is like a medium. So you have to look at, look at it per cooperage. Um, what I like is what's called a medium long toast. So it's medium. So what you do is you put the barrel in, 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 a, in, a, in a hole where there's fire and you've got Cooper, Cooper people that actually toast the barrel. You do that with whiskey as well and, and many other spirits. You toast the barrel. So the, the barrel, you burn it basically. And that's when you create the toast for the barrel. And depending on how you like the profile of the wine, you know, you look at the temperature, you look at the length of which it's toasted, uh, and all these things can make a big difference over the kind of toast you're gonna have and what kind of flavors it's gonna impart in the wine. For me, I like tobacco, I like coffee. Uh, you know, I don't like bacon. To me, it's, uh, it's, it's too much. I don't like char. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't like smoked meats either. That's another thing you can get from a toast. But I, I like more the toffee, the toffee, coffee, hazelnut, uh, tobacco, cigar tobacco. That's kind of where I like the spectrum of my flavors that come in from the barrel. So that's what I focus on. 
That's great. Now, uh, with your barrels, are they all first fill with your wines, or do you reuse barrels? We only use them once. 100% of patrimony is 100% your French oak, and they only use once. Great. Yeah, that's uh, that. I know that the wood that it's aged in can have a huge impact, and I do a lot of tasting of different whiskeys. As I was saying, I'm a that's my number one, and I'm a huge Scotch fan. So trying different barrels and different expressions, even of similar whiskeys, is something that I like to do. So I know how much of a difference that can make. Now, with that special French oak that you use, do you find that that specific one has different flavors that it pulls out of it? And more so, obviously, with the uh, longer aging and that tighter grain, you're going to have different uh, amounts of flavor that come through. But is the actual flavor that comes out of it different than if you were to do the same process with a different type of French oak? Absolutely. I think the oak can really, uh, it's a very fine line. Uh, uh, very fine line, Nick. It's one of these things where if you go overboard, you're not, you're not really, you basically destroy the integrity of the terroir. Then all you're doing is tasting wood. If you do too little, then uh, you know, it doesn't accentuate the wine enough with flavors that are complex and also giving a good tannin structure, which is important because it helps with that. So you wanna be kind of right in that fine line where you don't go overboard on one end, but you don't go you know, underboard on the other end. And that's a very fine line to, uh, to, to walk. And we've done, I mean, yearly, yearly experiments after experiments and tasting barrels. We taste barrels after three months, after six months, after 12 months, after 18 months. We taste them all the way and make notes. And that's the conclusion after doing that for now 14 years, we've come back to the conclusion saying we like this. That's what works well with our program. And that's how the barrels are made, regardless of which cooper's reels. And then to, to speak on, you mentioned that you, your cost, your process, it's obviously longer. Almost everything that you do is either, you know, it seems to be double or more of the output for half the uh, pullback. So you guys are in a special space where you're not, it's not an attainable wine. It's not one that you're going to go buy on the shelf for $15, $20. You are in a luxury space and yeah. the product certainly is luxury tasting and it is unique. It definitely deserves that label and that price tag. Now, how do you find you compare with the other, the, to rephrase, rephrase this a different way, the wines that you're getting out, where do you stack up with other sort of luxury wines? Are you in a price point that is, you know, there's these thousands of dollars bottles of wines and then there's you, or are you in your own space? Let me make that simple. First of all, if you look at on Wine Searcher, they give you an average score for wines. We are the highest rated Cabernet. When you look at scoring from from people, from seller trackers, from individuals, we're the highest. We're at 96 points. Everything else that's cost two to three to 10 times more is in the 93 to 95 range. So we're actually the highest rated Cabernet. And when you look at our price, even though it's expensive at 275 a bottle, we're actually the least expensive out of that upper tier where wines sell typically from 400 to $4,000 a bottle. So we're higher rated, we're, 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 we have a very unique terroir that you don't find in other wines. And I can tell you that we do tastings on a weekly basis against wines that sell for three, four, five, ten 10 times more. And I know it's gonna sound bullful, but I'm gonna say we win every time. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago, there was a tasting in Ohio. I'd be glad to send you that email, I kept it. It was a master sommelier conducting a tasting of patrimony against I believe six or seven, 100 point rated, more expensive wines, unanimously almost patrimony beat them. Yesterday, actually today, there was a tasting in Denmark, 
our wine against a wine that sells from Napa at twice the price. Okay, 70% of the people rating the wine preferred ours and put it at number one. So our wine way over the liver on the price. And even though we hate to use the word value in that upper tier for the rum rating and flavor standpoint, it is still a value because for that price, for the price you're paying for other wines that are not as good, you can get two bottles of that, of patrimony, or sometimes 10 of them. In one case, you can get 20 of them for wine that's better. So uh, the consumer sees that as a value. You know, they're, they're, even the consumers that have a lot of money, they're willing to spend hundreds of dollars on a bottle. You know, I often tell people, when people make money, and that's not because they're stupid, because they're smart. So if they can find a wine that's better, that's actually less expensive, of course they're gonna buy it. So, so that's what we've done very well. We play in that upper tier, but when you look at that upper tier, we're priced more competitively than the other ones. And I definitely uh, encourage anyone that's looking for that special bottle or that's out at a restaurant and sees your wines to try a glass because it is something like uh, I haven't experienced before in wine. Uh, it is a very unique one. I'm grateful that you came on to share that with us tonight and told us all about it. You definitely educated me. I'm sure Bianca learned a bunch too, uh, but I definitely uh, enjoyed talking to you tonight. I'm glad you were able to come on and uh, Rihanna, thank you for that. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. I love seeing siblings work together. My brother and I have worked together all our lives. Uh, and by the way, our, one of our top guys who works for Patrimony, the last name is Palombo like you. So hey. I don't know if he's a relative. <laughs> Steve Palombo. He's, uh, a he good name. Opus, yeah, he was at Opus One for 21 or 22 years and decided to come to uh, Patrimony about a year ago. And we're very glad to have him. So you have a fratello that, uh, that works here. Uh, awesome. Or, or, or a cousin. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. I know that there's a uh, there's different Palumbos coming out of Italy that are in the wine space. So I'm sure we're not the only ones, and I'm sure he's not the only <laughs> one. But it's fun to know that there's others out there. But again, thank you so much for coming on, sharing this with us tonight, and giving us this experience. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Enjoy the wine, and hopefully we'll connect again soon. Absolutely. Cheers. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.